Hello, and welcome to the Big Leads Press Pass Podcast. I'm your host, Liam McEwen, and today with us, we have a very special guest. His name is Matt Sullivan, author of the hit new book, Can't Knock the Hustle, Inside the Season of Protest, Pandemic, and Progress with the Brooklyn Nets Superstars of Tomorrow. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course, man. Thanks for having me. Always happy. And I mean, this book, this has been making the news that you've been reporting on and the reporting you did for this book have been really the talk of the town in the NBA media world recently. And so I'm really excited to get the chance to talk to you. But, you know, I've talked to a couple guys who've written books on the podcast before. And my favorite question to start off with is like, how you feeling now that it's done? I'm relieved as a long suffering Knicks fan. It was a lot of thinking about the Nets, a lot of getting inside the heads of people who let's just say are very complex. And so it's been nice to get a a breather. You know, we've really raced to get this thing done as contemporaneously as possible, but also include stuff from this past season, which I've also been reporting over the last couple of weeks and months. I'm excited to get a break. I don't think my next book's gonna be about sports at all. Um, I, I got to get out there hooping myself instead of writing about it. So it's it's been nice to relax, and I'm actually looking forward to the finals being over so I can go to a baseball game or two. <laughs> yeah, and it's quickly approaching. But uh, so you, this is your first book, first full book that you've written, and you're already thinking about your second one. That's not always the the vibe coming off right after it published. It's published a couple months ago now, and that that whole process is a lot, as everybody knows or can imagine but you're excited to tackle that whole process again at some point? I think so, yeah. I need a bit of a breather, but uh, looking forward to doing something that is perhaps a bit more serious, impactful, kind of real-world stuff. As much of that is is in my book, and I think there'll be threads of that thinking, that curiosity that have been there. But, you know, I'm not necessarily a sports writer or even a writer by trade, and so I, I've I've learned a lot about criminal justice reform and, you know, bigger, more important issues in our world than, than basketball. And some of that sprinkled throughout the book, but I think I, I'd like to pick up some of those strands that I've learned along the way of my career and, and go forward with something a little different. Absolutely. And your career is very varied for, you know, people see this book that you've written, they assume you're a lifelong basketball writer. And that's not at all the case, as you just mentioned, you have a lot of, you have a lot of different places you've worked in the past and you've done a lot of work as an investigative reporter. And so just as a broad question for you, how did, the various stops at different places like Leach Report, like Esquire, like whatever you want. The, how did all that kind of build up and help you write this book, all the skills that you accumulated? I'm not sure it was a skill so much as just a determination and a real curiosity about issues. So when I was at Esquire, we did sports, but we did terrorism and politics. And I really came up through that. And when I was at the Atlantic, I was running newsrooms through the Boston bombing and mass shootings like the one in Sandy Hook. And when I was at Times, The Guardian, we handled you know big investigations. Um, at The Guardian, we looked into every single police killing in America. And I think that's obviously affected the entire country, the entire world, but certainly the basketball world. And so I became curious about these issues. And you fast forward to, to Bleacher Report, where I founded BR Mag. And and we had established writers like Jonathan Abrams, Howard Beck, and I recruited up-and-comers like June Lee and Master Svatsian and Mirren Fader, whose book on Giannis is coming out. You should check that out too, by the way. But we were assigning these like big, important stories on issues from domestic violence in the NFL to activism to the anthem. I was working on this big 
big story with Rembert Brown. He used to work at, at Grantland and New York Magazine. And it was on Kaepernick and not just the controversy, but the human being and how his education and activism developed from his hometown to Berkeley to beyond and beyond and beyond and beyond. And we realized we were at like 10,000 words. And this is after a lot of rewriting by me and writing and going back and sending Rembert out for one last little paragraph. And it had to be enough for the internet. 10,000 words is, is a lot. Mm -hmm. But it taught me that there was just so much more that weirdly hadn't been fully uncovered in that intersection of sports and the real world, which obviously is up in our feeds all the time in these kind of off the court soap operas and comedies and what have you. And the, the Bleacher Reports of the World bring that to you. But I think there aren't enough outlets to bring you the news and sports and humanity and celebrity. And so I, I had a lot of those things that I wanted to intersect in my mind. I just didn't know the opportunity was going to come around for me to go from being an editor to being a writer, go from a very online internet person to a dead tree book. <laughs> Dead tree book, my favorite way to describe it. But how did the opportunity come about? So my first big job in journalism was running uh, digital for Esquire. Mm. And the longtime editor-in-chief uh, was my mentor and then boss, David Granger, who became a literary agent a few years ago. And I always kept up with him. He always looked after me as kind of my, my main long-term mentor, father figure type. And he wrote me an email on the day of what Woj called, quote, the clean sweep when Kyrie and KD announced their, what I reported as long-held intentions to come to Brooklyn. And Granger's email's subject line is like, someone should write a book, dot, dot, dot. He rarely even has subject lines. And when he does, they're very cryptic. <laughs> and then the body of the text was something like about the Nets starting today. Is Kyrie crazy? KD on the mend? New owner, Alibaba, players who go to Harvard, players who actually want to play in Brooklyn and walk to the arena. Who's the best writer you know in, in Brooklyn who loves basketball? And I listed some of the aforementioned fancy writers who I've worked with, other fancy writers who, like me, liked basketball, but maybe weren't doing it day to day and could offer a perspective outside of the national NBA media or the beat writers. And I was kind of like, but I could do this. You know, I'm kind of sick of the grind and, and Bleacher Report's you know, constant evolutions were honestly taking a toll on me. And I, and I wanted to try something new. And I think the idea of having a blank canvas was interesting. And obviously the Nets players already had a lot of drama attached to them wherever they went. But I think they also intersected with so many of the moments that I'd seen as a fan and a journalist outside of sports journalism. And then in those empty in-betweens we discussed at Bleacher Report. And so here you had Kyrie who'd worn the I Can't Breathe t-shirts, right? You'd had KD who'd been through the kind of politics of the Warriors. You had even DeAndre Jordan who'd been through the racism of Donald Sterling and, and all the social influence kind of coming up through these guys and they intersected with the LeBrons and the Warriors of the world. And so all those intersections that were kind of racing through my mind, I figured could could work in a book that was about player empowerment, activism, but also the Nets. I just had to break my way inside. And so I knocked on the door, 
bugged the Nets, bugged the Nets some more. They went through that whole Daryl Morey controversy where they were trapped in China with the Lakers and nobody knew what to say or what to do or how to speak about foreign policy. And so I was like, all right, this is already having those intersections that I'm so interested in. It made the access weirdly, the timing worked out that I, they, they wanted to be in even though it seemed like that that was going to hurt my my access. So they just gave me a press pass and they're like, look, this isn't going to be Moneyball. Because <laughs> the Nets are very secretive, right? I mean, they, they are one of those kind of PR departments that don't give deep access. And you look at the Kyries of the world who, Kyrie hasn't given an on-the-record sit-down, on-camera interview in like two and a half years, mm-hmm. right? And the KD obviously had his issues with the media. And so they're like, okay, here's, here's the press pass. We might not win the championship this year because KD is hurt, but... Go, you know, make friends, make sources, earn trust and and see what happens. And I was ready to do that. I'm not sure I, I knew that I would fall into the history books with the crazy last year and a half we've had. Yeah, you just I think you just kind of laid out really well for the listeners here, kind of what your idea of the book was going to be going in and what you wanted to accomplish from it and kind of what your your motivation and your drive for going through the process of writing an entire book And then obviously, as you just said, you embed with the Nets, you start doing what they told you to, you start making your sources, you start earning trust, and then suddenly the world itself spirals out of control. You have a pandemic, you have the social justice issues that came along with the pandemic, and then it extends all the way into the next year when it's like this weird janky half NBA season that's all crammed together, but Katie and Kyrie are back, and then James Harden comes in. It's all, it's, you know, I laid out how the book evolved, but from your perspective as the guy who was writing it, who was there on, you know, from day one of your reporting process, and then were there as all of these events unfolded, how did the book evolve in your eyes from what you thought it was going to be to what it ended up becoming? So I think a lot of the strands were starting to tie together. And as I said, the the book has a main chronology of the season, but also flashbacks, rewinds, literally with little buttons that look like, um, you know, old school CD player or something. And those take you back to moments over the last 10 years. And so there's a lot of eerie parallels that I was bringing together, whether that was about activism, influence, celebrity, what have you, without trying to retread too much of like the ad nauseum KD Kyrie locker room drama, although I found some of that too. And so I was kind of running when, once we got through Kobe, which was its own thing. And it's hard to remember that that was only last January. And then the Nets fired their coach and I was getting to like, okay, control, player empowerment. I was like, okay, this is a lot of drama. Like I could start wrapping this thing up, but I had a lot of strands that I felt like weren't settled. I've been talking to players about activism and police killings and this guy Garrett Temple used to play for the Nets had been at a game that was empty and almost shut down by protests. And he didn't know whether he was going to boycott the game or not. I've been talking to guys like Wilson Chandler about the anthem and whether you were really allowed, quote unquote, allowed by the league to be political or whether you wanted to risk your your contract. And that had been a big thing with LeBron in China, but I hadn't quite figured out where LeBron was going as a leader of people, you know, President LeBron, if you will. And so I felt like the closure wasn't quite there. I didn't have an ending. And so I was at the Lakers Nets game in mid early to mid March at Staples Center. And I'd been doing I've been I've been kind of weirded out by, you know, weren't people wearing masks or people not wearing masks. There seems like a lot of people here. And I was at an arena with 18,000 people. And then overnight, 
the Nets were supposed to play the first game without fans, like ever, against the Warriors up in up in the Bay. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to fly home. Uh, I'm going to go be with my family. And when I landed on the plane, Tom Hanks has it. Rudy Gobert thing has gone down. Before long, KD has it. I mean, the, the thing with the Nets is they weren't just dramatic, and but they were tied at every step of the way, right? Remember when the Nets had more players test positive than anyone? Remember when KD tested positive? Remember when the Nets were on the front page of the New York Times because they were even getting tests when your average citizen wasn't supposed to? Donald Trump was asked about it at the White House. Remember Donald Trump? You know, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's all of these these intersections. And then, you know, things were kind of quiet. And I was like on Zoom meditating with Wilson Chandler. I'm kind of thinking, where is this all going? And then obviously, horribly, the George Floyd killing happened. I, I'm texting about, I'm te- like, I think I texted Wilson Chandler the video first or something. And, and the protests pop off right here down the block from me at, at Barclays Center. It kind of became a, an epicenter, if you will, of a lot of the global protests. And this was a very political team behind the scenes as I gotten to know. And so, so these strands were coming together. I was protesting in the streets with these guys. And then... I'm kind of like, okay, like, we'll see where this goes. The bubble is kind of coming. And then Kyrie has this kind of coalition of the unwilling he's trying to form. And what I think ESPN rather starkly describes, quote, the disruptor. Um, he is, he is, he likes to be disruptive. And I think he was pushing some buttons there. And so that was a whole thing. And then the Nets got to the bubble and had even more guys test positive. And they had this whole scrappy team, called, they called themselves the bubble Nets, and then, and then there was another strike. And then, and then I felt like I had my ending, right? And so the book kind of closes with the strike in the bubble by the Bucks that kind of proved that Kyrie was right all along, but mm-hmm. that the NBA had kind of learned its path, how to know its role, not just as retweeters, but not as politicians either. And so they're kind of negotiating with themselves, with Barack Obama, and the players are kind of figuring out what next year's team is going to look like. So it all coalesced kind of how I had hoped at the beginning i just didn't know what the hell was going to come in between and it was certainly a lot yeah a lot is uh understating the matter i might say the olympics euros baseball major championships and concerts are all in this summer you know what isn't a wild and hairy bush tame your pubes with help from our friends at manscape the leaders in below the waist grooming their fourth generation performance package includes the brand new lawnmower 4.0 if an athlete treats their body like royalty, why not treat your pubes like Olympic gold? Fellas, do right by your balls and join the 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com with the code FANSIDED20. Talk about a world-class dismount into a post-quarantine world. This package is the perfect package for your package and peak performance in whatever sport you desire. The brand new Lawnmower 4.0 is here to take the podium. This fourth-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code FANSIDED20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code FANSIDED20 at manscaped.com. Achieve pubic glory this year with Manscaped. How do you... So a lot of the stuff that you wrote about is obviously these are sensitive topics. These are sensitive issues and you're, but you're not, and it's easy to write about basketball as a basketball reporter. You ask guys about basketball, they answer about basketball and it's very, you know, defined in the lines. And, but your job in this particular scenario was something that was a little bit more intimate. You were getting to know these guys as people. And then you had to try to approach these issues 
as a reporter embedded with these guys, but while it was a time of great emotional turmoil for just about everybody. So, I mean, how did you sort of find that experience trying to get to know these guys without, I don't know, like overstepping or anything like that, or trying to approach these topics the right way? As I told KD in the locker room back when reporters were allowed in the locker room, not that many reporters were like kind of had the balls to talk to KD who was doing his own thing during Achilles rehab. I said, no offense, but I don't really care about your on the court stuff. You know, I want to get to know you guys in the context that a book allows. And I think that was intriguing to a lot of guys who are misinterpreted, taken out of context, you know, one quote ripped from a locker room press conference into something that goes viral for all the wrong reasons. So I think the almost the length of a book and the idea that I wasn't going to tweet for two years, I was going to give them, you know, not a um, sycophantic approach that you might get in a magazine profile, but a um, an honest look that you might get from 15 magazine profiles back to back to back in one place. And so I think that was intriguing. So it's just honestly having conversation. These guys have to put up with so many X's and O's questions, so many stories for the Sunday papers preview of the next day's game. And I think they just get sick of it. And so you had this team of um, extraordinarily bright players who yeah, Wilson Chandler and Garrett Temple's lockers were next to each other. We were just talking about the election. We were talking about like Bernie and Biden. And I think that was interesting to them because maybe they weren't going to, you know, um, get to have that conversation with anyone, maybe not even their girlfriends. Right. And so that was interesting to them. I think with, with Kyrie Irving in particular, I never asked him a basketball question and I'm not sure there were a lot of times when he wanted to answer any. And so a lot of the, the answers that he gave in the locker room that went quote unquote viral last year, whether that was about just kind of the nature of celebrity about Kobe, especially, you know, I had rambling questions and he had rambling answers. So I think I was kind of known amongst players and coaches as having these overprepared sort of long winded, uh, heady questions. And I was kind of taken aback, like, okay, we're having this conversation now and, and they would go for it. And I think I became known as that guy for better or worse, I think some folks in the Nets organization, um, I don't know if they grew suspicious, but they started to realize that this was really a different mm. proposition. This was really a different kind of journalism that they were getting day in, day out. And so they didn't know what to expect. And I, and I didn't kind of tell them what, what was coming because the pandemic then hit. And I had what, what I guess any writer would want, which is isolation, freedom, and, and, the, the, and the freedom to text directly with, with sources who are not kind of pro protected by the NBA propaganda machine. Yeah, I interviewed Yaron Weitzman after his book about the process era Sixers came out, and he had to dodge several obstacles along the way that Philly PR, the Sixers PR, would kind of throw in his way. And your, you know, situations are obviously very different insofar as how your guys' respective reporting processes went. But when you said the Nets PR people got suspicious, did they act on that, or were there any kind of like uh, unexpected or unforeseen problems with the access that you were granted that you kind of had to work around as you were in the process of writing this book? I felt for your own, and, and he and I texted a lot during his process, and I, I was there for him as as um, his occasional editor, Bleacher Report, as well. It's my guy. It's a great book. Um, the, the Nets PR department is, how do I put this nicely? Uh, they're known, I think the New York Post beat reporter Brian Lewis called them, you know, Kremlin-esque. Uh, they don't <laughs> let anybody inside and that's over a, a hangnail, let alone a global pandemic. But I think in some ways the pandemic helped me not have to ask their permission for anything because they weren't giving permission for anything. They, they did not really help me other than 
allow me, quote unquote, allow me a question at the end of press conference here, press conference at the end of, you know, th this and that that seemed sort of harmless to them. Um, but I was straight up with them that I was getting to know players and that I wanted to ask a, a heady question that I think would be a good look for this guy during the bubble or whatever. They just kind of weren't having it most of the time. And so um, I would say I, I went behind their back. I just went face to face with the players. So, you know, Garrett Temple doesn't want to have to ask permission of the Nets PR department and his agency, although it did go through agencies a lot to talk to folks. Um, he didn't have to do any of that rigmarole process to invite me to his community event he's having like down the block from both of us and then I get to know his family right and and then he invites me over that later that night to have dinner with his family and then you know we go into his room for like an hour and talk politics talk activism talk cap talk kd and that's just a relationship I, I don't think you get that a lot unless you're doing some fancy magazine profile and so just spending time with these guys I think helped trust in the in the classic way but I think they needed somebody to talk to about this stuff. And then of course that night I also end up at KD's place at, you know, one o'clock in the morning, but that's a whole other story. Lots of which is not on the record. <laughs> of course, of course. And you just said it yourself, right? You don't really get to know these guys or you don't have that sort of face-to-face -face interpersonal interactions at the level that you did without writing some sort of fancy magazine profile. But not only did you, you wrote a book instead of a magazine profile. That means that you, that means that you got to have that sort of, close relationship with a lot of guys instead of just one if you're doing 10,000 words on you know an individual player so I mean well and you gotta you gotta hustle too right and, and I think even those fancy magazine profiles they're set up right it's like Bright Thompson is told to meet this player at this time and they're going to do this activity and it's going to last this long and then that person's going to go back to their life or their publicist or what have you and that's an anecdote here an anecdote there and, and Wright is obviously a master of the craft but I'm just saying there's a there's a kind of corporatized way of doing that and a book you're alone right you've got the book deal and you've got the press pass but you have to keep pushing and so i wrote a lot of annoying emails to a lot of people around the league whether that's dr j or a rookie through his sneaker contract i mean i knocked down every single door i think i was in touch with every pr department across the league some of which are better than others every major agency in the league, every sneaker company, and, and deep down into sources on the other side of conversations to confirm that I was doing this right. I mean, you know, Steve Kerr is giving answers about the next night's game against the Nets, but I have to pull him aside and say, hey, like KD's has said that this is one side of a private conversation he had with you at a bar a couple of years ago. Do you recall it this way? And I had to read it to him line by line to make sure I'm right because – I'm not getting the official access to sit down with KD or Steve Kerr at a bar. You just have to kind of make it happen yourself. And I think for any journalist who's thinking about writing a book or anyone who, who likes the idea of it, because I, I, I was approaching it pretty much blind while asking for a little advice, you, know, you just got to keep asking and keep using your, your force of personality, but also kind of be unabashed and going for it and asking for those big interviews because sometimes people really want to give them. And you know, it was hard to find Dr. J. It was hard to find John Carlos, but, you know, you just kind of keep digging. And, and I think that's a bit of my investigative reporting chops, I, I guess. But as a first time writer, I just, I think I was going at it without any holds barred or any reservations that, you know, I was going to do this my way and I was just going to go hard. How did that 
idea of like you're kind of alone in this process it's your responsibility you're the one who's doing everything how did that compare to previous work that you had done in different roles well I think I it's weird I'd, I'd always been kind of a controlling boss I was very um very particular about assigning and getting in the weeds with certain writers to help them grow I remember you know helping June Lee negotiate for access with Jimmy Garoppolo and then, you know, really sitting with every single paragraph, but I was seeing a finished product. And for me, this was like the first time I'd seen a blank page since maybe a Esquire feature here or there, or um, the college newspaper covering the Duke basketball team. And so I think that was its own kind of potential control. It really just created freedom and blank page is kind of obvious, but for someone who, was hyper organized and saw story structure um, in a in a long form kind of way. I think it was it was relatively easy for me to map this thing out. I mean, I kind of had this crazy, beautiful mind vision board that my <laughs> wife thought didn't look so good in our hipster living room in Brooklyn. But I got these, you know, relatively nice. I think they were you know room and board or something um, whiteboards that were organized almost. I think they're for calendar. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I and I organized them by chapter with characters across the top, and then the middle was a flashback, and then it was, I would just write these crazy arrows like, yeah, but what does this mean? How do these connect? And I connect them over chapters, and then I had to get another whiteboard when the pandemic hit, and another when the George Floyd protests hit. And I, I think I was able to see organization as an editor in a way that maybe not every writer staring down a, a very long uh, word count and a very long timeline was able to do. And so in that way, I was also able to move pretty fast just as an internet person. I wasn't intimidated by the history unfolding contemporaneously alongside me. So I was able to report fast, write fast. And, and I know it seems like a long time ago since the 2019-2020 the season, but for a book to actually come out this quickly that isn't by a celebrity, I think it is relatively rare. And so we were able to do this thing, um, you know, I guess pun intended in a hustle. <laughs> Yeah, you turned it around really quickly, given the timeline that you just gave, which is pretty impressive. What was what was that time crunch like for you? It was okay. I, th- I think the only thing we were really um, concerned about was, you know, when was this hardened trade going to go down? It looked like it was going to go down for a while. It was really coming um, down to the wire with our kind of final, final deadlines to send this off to the printer. If I'm honest, I don't find Harden to be that deep of a character. He's a smart guy, cool guy, incredible all-time player, but it wasn't like we were missing things other than in the stuff I'd already reported on KD's relationship with him and just player control, player empowerment. He's certainly in the epilogue as is Steve Nash, who I worked with for a long time at, uh, at Bleacher Report as well. So I just had to add, I think it was 13 jokes about the growth of James Harden's beard. <laughs> that was the hardest thing about catching up with, with the Nets this past season. But I, I kept in touch with my sources. And again, when I kind of let these cats out of the bag after not tweeting or whatever for two years, I think a lot of people were surprised, not only by the contents of the book, but that I'd seen, continued to notice something I'd looked at before every game covering the team more deeply as a kind of pseudo beat writer, just just looking at the anthem every night Mm. uh, and who had their hand on their heart, who was kind of waddling back and forth, who was over it before the song was over. And it was always something I was curious about. It's certainly in the book, the, the legacy of, of Kaepernick's uh, gesture and whether it was watered down and the NBA kind of really uh, having a chilling effect on players wanting to, to take a knee uh, a few years ago. 
And then I had a story for, for GQ come out around the time of the book release about how uh, Kyrie, KD, DeAndre Jordan uh, were skipping the anthem this year. And I think that surprised a lot of people. A lot of people were like, well, the anthem's the anthem. These guys can do what they want. And that's a private decision. But, you know, these are extraordinarily public figures. And I think what they do, even if it's a small private gesture uh, without, you know, politically being outspoken, I think, I think matters. I think they matter as role models. And I hope that bigger picture comes across to people who aren't even necessarily into politics and sports. But I think just looking at the idea of influence and the decisions of our um, people we sometimes look up to more than our politicians and, and how that affects our mindsets, um, whether it was last season, this season, or going forward. How did, in your experience, when you were talking with the Nets players about that idea that you just put forth about the the concept of like their, the, the role they play in society as role models for people and kind of the importance of the stances that they take, how did from what you heard and from what you understand, how did those guys kind of like handle that? Because there's two sides of the coin as there is for most things, but it's, you know, some guys feel like it's too much. Some guys feel like it is really like, you know, they play, they're played, paid lots of money to play a game. So there's this their obligation. I mean, where in your, you know, sort of feeling did the guys fall in that spectrum? I think there's a lot of younger guys who are coming up in a generation that is just kind of more thoughtful and more online in general, but who also hold back because, they're still on their rookie deals or they're trying to make it up from the G league. And they look up to LeBron KD Steph Curry for signals. Is it okay? You know, and I think LeBron in my brief interactions with him also sees himself as kind of a shield. And so he's might be comfortable talking about China actually, even though it might mess with his shoe deal, but he doesn't want other guys to have to do it. Does that make sense? It's kind of a protector. And so I think there are guys like some of the younger players I talked to on the Nets who were very open with me about feeling uncomfortable taking a knee in the, in the bubble because they were wearing t-shirts and it was branded and it felt like kind of corporatized protest. And I think they'd come a long way to understanding that. And someone like Jalen Brown, who is now quite outspoken I think it was someone who you could see as wanting to take a knee back in the day, but he didn't have his big contract yet. He, he had, it was more difficult to take a risk. And so I talked a lot about this with Spencer Dinwiddie, who mm-hmm. um, has been hurt this season, but is a, an incredible entrepreneur who knows how to use influence, even though he's not yet an all-star and doesn't have a team for next year yet is, a, a kind of paragon of influence. He, he knows how to be the non-LeBron, but use being an NBA player to the advantage of his brand, to the advantage of his money, but really to the advantage of what an athlete influencer can be. And so he's out here IPOing his own contract and starting his own creator galaxy app, but he understands what NBA Twitter is and isn't, what uh, a, a what is accepted obviously as a human being in the Trump era in terms of your politics and, and where, where audiences and fans are going in terms of just decentralization as a high level concept, but also just basketball and sports as becoming less team and location oriented and more personality and star driven. And so he wants to be that personality, almost teamless, locationless. He's Spencer Dinwiddie. And I, I was really kind of inspired by him 
you know, the, the subtitle of my book is inside the very long inside the season of protest pandemic and progress, which I think we've been over with the Brooklyn Nets superstars of tomorrow. And I, I see him as kind of a superstar of tomorrow, the non LeBron's taking the power back the guys coming up from the G league into the NBA draft now who have a gazillion followers on IG before they hit their twenties. And I think it'll be interesting to see where those guys take the last decade of influence. And I almost wonder if LeBron, you know, Carmelo, this banana boat generation of thought leaders, it's almost a bridge gap from the kind of Republicans by sneakers to Jordan era of superstars through this incredibly legendary group of superstars who are now aging out and to see where the Spencer Dinwiddie's, the Jalen Greens, whatever, take this thing going forward into kind of the millennial Gen Z takeover of, of basketball influence. Absolutely. And Matt, you mentioned at the beginning of this interview that you would be interested in writing a second book eventually, but in the interim, what's next for Matt Solomon? I think digging into this next book, uh, you know, while I've got um, some of the, the juice and, and, and creative juices flowing from that, I, I really want to uh, think about non-celebrity. I think, you know, the, this world has been so caught up in, in American power, in American celebrity, in the Trumps, in the LeBrons, that uh, I, I hope post-pandemic will realize something I realized during the pandemic which is you know the plight of, of real everyday people who, who are overlooked in this world. And I think that's something I got into journalism for. Um, but it's also in the book, I, I think people will notice, I stop at the pandemic. It's almost like a part two. I stop flashing back. I stop focusing so much on Kevin Durant and more to the everyday people. You know, mm. that super fan who uh, worked in, in a big hospital here uh, in New York, getting PPE equipment during the pandemic, a fan who kind of lost everything during the pandemic and you know, people who got COVID who were related to players. I mean, it's a lot of, again, about these intricate interweavings of our lives with celebrities, but also people who we just pass in, in the tunnel or in the hallway or on the beer line at, at a game who deserve that shine, deserve the same attention. And so I think that's why it was important in my book that I, in a chapter about Kyrie, I've got a quote from the head of Instagram about influence, but two paragraphs later, I've got a quote from the star of Kyrie's eighth grade basketball team, you know, now like a 14 year old talking about what Kyrie's influence means to him. And so I think giving voice to the voiceless is obviously a lot about what these movements and, and these activists and, and social justice causes that I'm interested in that I think will continue to have, you know, maybe more influence than, than the bronze of the world. Um, that deserves reporting. That deserves two years of embedding too. So I'm excited to get get to that, um, and I'm excited to get to a baseball game. Well, best of luck at the baseball game, and certainly best of luck with your new book. I'm sure it's going to be something outstanding. Uh, Matt, thank you so much again for coming on, man. This is a really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Appreciate you, Liam. Keep fighting the good fight, man. Oh, absolutely. And thank you, listener, as always, for tuning in. Buy Can't Knock the Hustle at whatever your favorite local bookstore is because support local businesses. And that is your host, Lee McEwen, signing off. <laughs>